Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we welcome and salute Ben Welsh. Ben has been a longtime editor of data and graphics at the Los Angeles Times. He's currently on a fellowship. He's the visiting senior data journalist at Stanford University. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. What is your data journalism and journalism overall origin story? Well, it's not very glamorous, and it's nothing that really had a big plan behind it. It's uh, it's a little bit of an accident. So I was a listless undergraduate at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. This is now, I guess, oh, about 20 years ago or so. Let's be generous to me. You know, as part of being a student there, I had a, I had a job at the university to help cover some of my tuition, work study, that kind of thing. I was answering phones in the communication department and helping students who came in looking for help with administrative stuff. And so it was just like a job, like any other. And in this very important job, they entrusted me with the very important task of putting up flyers on the bulletin boards around the building, Schmidt Academic Center on Fullerton in Chicago. Uh, go Demons. <laughs> and and one day I was I was tacking up one of those flyers and I, you know, I actually stopped to read it. And it said, hey, there's two journalists who are moving into DePaul, setting up a residence, and they're looking for like a student to be their schmuck, to be their, you know, intern schlep. And uh, people should apply. And, you know, I was sitting there looking at it and I thought, you know, I've never really considered being a journalist or take, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to do my life at all, but that sounds better than this job. <laughs> and so because I think I was the first one to see it, I was the first one to apply. I've never asked. I may have been the only one to apply. Who knows? But that might explain how I got the job. And so, you know, soon after I quit my job answering phones and tacking up flyers and went to work as an assistant to, uh, it was a TV anchor and her longtime producer partner who had gone independent. They were doing a weekly column for the Chicago Tribune, later the Sun-Times, and a weekly television investigative piece. And I was just the guy who booked interviews and cut a tape and did whatever stuff around the office needed to get done. The basics, you know, of of investigative work and TV work. And they were really great professionals. Their names are Carol Maureen and Don Mosley. You know, I got to do my first public records request in that job. And, you know, there's a suburb of the city of Chicago. Locals can probably guess which one, which was famous for having quite a bit of corruption. And we had received a tip that a local heavy was uh, having his law firm overbill the city to sort of uh, to get some kickbacks and get some money out of the city. So how are we ever going to figure that out? Well, we filed a public records request and uh, it was my first one. And we got back all the legal bills from this Chicago suburb. And of course, they were very helpful in sending it to us as one really, really long printout. Do you remember the long old printouts from the 80s and 90s with the perforated tear sheets on the side that kind Absolutely. of created a really long accordion? So we got one of those back and it was dozens and dozens of pages. And we're like, what the heck are we going to do with this? I think the numbers we want are in here, but we got to like add it all up and figure it out. And, you know, I don't know where the idea came from, but I was like, well, maybe we should make a spreadsheet. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably the first time I seriously used a spreadsheet in my whole life. And I just sat there for a day or two and typed in all the numbers by hand and then was able to sum it up. And we had the big number that the story was based on. And I was very careful not to tear the paper so the, the anchor could climb a stepladder and drop it on air, you know, just to show how long and silly it was. 
And I kind of got the bug, you know, it was like I saw in that that through technology and the kind of data analysis, I could do a really cool story that nobody else was doing, like kind of, you know, exciting journalism that was more than just the basic stuff. And two, that by having the technological skills or just like faking it and figuring it out, I could kind of find my niche. I could be useful. You know, I could have my my angle, you know, in on something. And so it was that combination of opportunity and excitement that just got me, showed me, kind of opened up a new avenue for me. You know, I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Missouri, where they had one of the earliest, most specialized programs in teaching data journalism. And so I was able to focus more on like developing the skills, actually learning how to code, doing stories on my own, all the other traditional journalism training. And that really set me up to kind of take on this career as a specialist, as someone who really focuses on data all day, every day, and gradually become like a computer programmer too, which is something I never set out to do. But it all started with that one FOIA and that one story. And, and you know, that hit of that is, I think, what I'm still chasing every day when I get get up and get going. Was there anything in your background before college that would have lent itself to storytelling or data storytelling? Well, I was always interested in the internet early on. I grew up in eastern Iowa in, you know, a somewhat rural, although not extremely rural, but somewhat rural circumstance. And, you know, we got the internet when I was young and I remember life before it and life after it. And it was always kind of my connection to the wider world and really opened my eyes to so much in this what this sort of way to just learn and engage. And it was always very exciting to me from very early on. So the idea of internet publishing and connecting with people across the planet who are very different from me and learning different things just was from, from, from very beginning was just so exciting. And I think that, that, that is, that was probably the closest thing to it being there. You know, a lot of that was about music being a teenager (laughs) or just goofing off, you know, but but I think it's connected. And I, I still honestly, I, you know, I know we're at, a, we're at a moment right now where there's a lot of negativity about the Internet. And I think that that's fair. And I think a lot of the criticisms are valid. But there's so much that's so great about it. And, you know, just every day to be able to connect with people on the other side of the planet in a collaborative project or to exchange views or information. It's just it's 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 mind blowing. You know what I mean? Our ancestors could couldn't even conceive of it. Can you take us through the path that you took through the Los Angeles Times? Yeah, I mean, so I I did, I was working in Chicago. Then I got my graduate degree in at Mizzou, M I Z, and uh, then I went and worked in D.C. for a couple of years at the Center for Public Integrity, which is a nonprofit newsroom that really specialized, especially at that time, in data analysis into money and politics and environmental data. And at that time, the war in Iraq. And so I was really lucky to be mentored earlier in my career by experienced data journalists there who had done a lot of really ambitious projects focused on, you know, what really matters, the public interest and accountability. And that led me to really get a lot of reps and practice at kind of more ambitious work. And then there was an opportunity to get a job at the LA Times working at the website, which at that time was separate. You know, it's really not that long ago. It's only about a decade ago or more that most legacy newsrooms merged their websites into their newsrooms. They used to be entirely separate operations in the early 2000s and even late 00s. And so the LA Times website was in a period of experimentation and investment in, this was like 2007. And they were looking for somebody to like make data things on the web, which at that time it was like new ideas. Like what if election results could show up right as they arrive on the internet, right? 
And we could automate that process. You know, really the 2004 and 2008 elections were the first time that happened. You know, I think it's really underappreciated that that's pretty recent development, you know. So things like that were happening and there's idea, could you make it happen? And since, you know, someone, you know, I really got into journalism thinking it, thinking of it as an investigative career and I love investigative work and I still do it. But I've also always loved just internet publishing and making things for the web, like I was talking about too. And so, you know, at that time, and I think still today, a lot of the job opportunities are on the publishing and development side, just like making things happen on the internet, who can do it, you know? And so this job was really more one like that. And that was a chance for me to, Moved to California, which was a place I'd always dreamed about, and and tried try that out, you know. And so I just bought the one way ticket, man, and did it. You know, I didn't really know anybody. There's a whole longer story to that, but that got me to L.A. So you took a good while through there. You had been there for a while. Now you're working on something different, the big local news project. Can you explain your transition from one to the other? Yeah, so I've been at the LA Times nearly 15 years now, um, and I did, I've done a lot of different things. We started out with the website separate, really focused just on digital projects, did more and more of those, kind of tried to build a system at the LA Times for turning data into websites, into apps, into things for our audience. And that ultimately grew into creating a whole team around that, and then that team gradually sort of merged with and became the model for our reformed graphics department, and so we gradually sort of use the experimentation of our group to institutionalize some like digital and data practices into kind of the legacy group. And I think really the culmination of that work, not just for us, but for really all the mainstream media data journalism groups was the coronavirus story. You know, the pandemic was such a data story, but really the coronavirus trackers that I think we all saw and probably used at least once, you know, really were the most popular uh, things ever published by American news outlets, probably in terms of just raw viewership. And they really were also the culmination of more than a decade of experimentation in the kind of apps that we were working on on our team, but that many, many other outlets were working on too. And so that was a really rewarding and sort of capstone kind of experience of trying to institutionalize a lot of it. We had kind of finished making some really important reforms to the, the group I was I was managing. And it just seemed like a great moment to kind of to, to turn the page and pass some torches and take on something new. And so this year I'm on a fellowship at Stanford University with a group called Big Local News. And so this is a project that's based in the Stanford Journalism School run by professors there and people affiliated with the university. And it's intended to help local news outlets do more with data. Where, you know, as we've seen, small outlets struggle in the new economic environment and big outlets thrive you know, a lot of the data work is really concentrated at the largest newsrooms. And so the goal of our group is to help support the, what we call lonely coders in our little <laughs> tribe, which is the one or two people at small news outlets across the country that are very skilled and very dedicated, but have to do, do it all themselves and finding a way to help them do, to get more data, do more with it and be more efficient is really a big part of this project. So we act as sort of data librarians who are collecting large data sets that can be used by local journalists all across the country, like say getting police stops from all 50 state highway patrols, right? And, and consolidating and cleaning it would be one example from our group. But then also we have some technology that makes it easier for them to share large data sets between newsrooms. And we develop other tools to help people like to, to, do, to keep an eye on important data streams and do stuff with it. I've been working on one related to layoffs. And so really we're like a little nerd tank 
you know, <laughs> who are trying to kind of like come up with stuff that makes that makes life easier for these for someone at you know the my home the paper where I grew up in the Cedar Rapids Gazette in Eastern Iowa to help them you know do more with data than they might be doing now. So is it as simple as they go into a Slack chat or the equivalent thereof and say, hey, we're working on this, we're hoping to do it in the next three weeks, three to six weeks. Can you assist us with this? Is is that the kind of thing that you do? That can happen. Like, you know, it's just purely consulting and help. And if people want and need that kind of help at local news outlets, please reach out. We definitely want to. Oftentimes it's it can be a little it can come from the other direction too, where like say we're collecting all the police stops data in the country. We put in a lot of work to get all that because who else is gonna do it? And then we try to connect with journalists and you know, kind of convince them to do stuff with it, which usually isn't that hard, but so it, it can go the other direction too. Do you, you have know? a vision of what you'll be doing for the midterms? I'm going to work with some local news outlets here in California to automate just the the, the flow of election results from county uh, recorders offices to like local public media homepages. You know, like there's just like a little bit of code that's necessary to like pull that data from where it gets tossed on the internet and and alley oop it. You know to the places. And this is one of these, this is a good example of where every news outlet working independently can kind of duplicate a lot of work, just trying to, you know, do that. And where by using open source software and kind of collaborating on common challenges, we can make that work a lot less burdensome for everyone. Right. And so I'm trying to be a kind of an open source software leader, a little bit like in that case to try to help make that happen. I want to go back to your time at the Times briefly yeah. and talk about something. You were on a, the, the data. There's a separate podcast called the Dana Journalism Podcast. You and Mary Jo Webster were both on. She talked at length about, I like the way that she put it, interviewing the source when it comes to interrogating data to try to figure things out. I love that because that's what I do, trying to figure out if player X is better than player Y in a sporting context. Is there an example from your time where you're particularly proud of and it shows something illustrative in some way of your interrogating the data in order to really mine for some particularly interesting stories and let's say non-COVID. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to pick any one because you really take that approach to every data story. Yep. You know, uh, oftentimes, you know, most of the work with data journalism is just getting the data, usually like, where is it? How can I find it? And then like cleaning it up, like it's in a weird format or it's got a bunch of gaps in it or it's inconsistent and needs to be standardized. Like that's usually that, that like annoying janitorial part <laughs> is probably like 95% of actual data journalism time spent. And especially on the highest value projects, because that means you're usually getting data that nobody else has, right? Because if data is clean and easy to get, it's probably been pretty well, you know, poured over. But once you have it, just like really just like asking it questions is crucial to both like getting the answers you need for your story, but also just like understanding what's up with the data. Like, how does it work? What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? Is it, can it be trusted? Right. And so oftentimes I write down questions that I want to like, and then I write the code that tries to answer them, you know, and that's like a pretty common back and forth. An example, I've been I've been filibustering to try to think of one. Let's see. Well, an example I would give is I did a series of stories about the 911 system in Los Angeles, the emergency response by our local fire department. And the reason we started doing the stories is there was kind of a minor political controversy about their performance from some 
small time political actors, I would I would call them. I think that's fair to say. And, you know, they made some allegations about problems in the system, you know, and their allegations like is the thing the small time politician says is true. Is it really true? Let's see if we can figure that out. Right. And of course, the answer is no. You know what I mean? Like they've oversimplified or they don't quite get it or they're just trying to score political points. And like you can do that and you can do your fact check story and the data can 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 serve that purpose. And that's great. That's fine. But what's really fun and was really exciting about that story is we kind of just developed our own questions about this system. Well, if it's in the news and it matters, what is going on with this? And a really common journalism technique that I think works well in investigative reporting is to is to, to develop your questions and how you evaluate the performance of, say, the government by using official standards that that aren't really that are that the government themselves try to live up to, like say the law or performance metrics that they themselves have established. So in that case, there were a series of performance metrics that are expected of 911 systems that were actually developed in part by the LA Fire Department. And we realized that no one in city government was evaluating the performance of the system against these metrics. You know what I mean? They had the official performance metrics and they weren't using them. And so we really came up with some questions really, which is like, well, it's supposed to take this long to answer a call. After the call has been answered, it's supposed to take this long to figure out what to do. And then once you figure out to send somebody, they're supposed to get here in this long, like that kind of thing, benchmarks. Develop those into questions, throw those against the database, and you got back some pretty surprising answers that there were some pretty serious problems in the 911 system that were just there. They were just like in the background. They were happening hundreds of times a week, and no one was talking about it, and it wasn't happening. But because we had gotten the data that no one else really bothered to because we had developed kind of questions that were based on like hard standards that weren't subjective, that were really things they were, they themselves said they ought to live up to. We were able to write some really strong stories about flaws in the system. And those were like little things, if I remember right. Those were like the borders of the different areas that a, a fire department wouldn't respond, even if it was like really close because it was someone else's responsibility because of how things were drawn, right? Yeah, there's just structural problems with how the 911 system is set up that a lot of people just accept as kind of like normal, but they really end up being the sort of clogs in the delivery of life-saving care. One is the fragmentation of our 911 system, especially in a city like LA, which has a very unusual shape and has these these sort of little narrow shoestring sort of passages uh, due to odd annexation policies <laughs> of the past. But then also just like the way in which questions are asked on the phone really came came up as another question. How are seizures identified versus cardiac arrests? And then how does that lead to someone being sent? And, you know, that was one of the major changes we were able to get made was in the questions that we call it the protocol that were being asked in a particular branch of diagnosis on the phone. And I think just by taking a question out in the right place or changing how you approach a system like that, they were able to really uh, seriously optimize their response time for some of the most severe cases that are the most time sensitive. And it's that sort of approach to analytics as sort of an optimization process that, you know, data people are into, you know, and so like I enjoyed that. So if you were going to teach this, if you were going to take a journalism student now, one who was going to cover politics or police and courts or local news or sports, what would you suggest that they get educated in from a data journalism perspective? Well, there's there's different ways to approach it, and I'm not sure there's one perfect way, way but I would say that 
you know, from a technical point of view, I mean, just learning how to use a spreadsheet is really a good skill for really any white collar adult. You know, it ought to be taught in high school. If you ask me, like, I feel like algebra two should basically also be a spreadsheet class. It's like kind of my like little unwelcome opinion or whatever, unsolicited opinion. But um, I think learning how to be getting comfortable with spreadsheets, getting comfortable with calculating formulas, getting comfortable with sorting and filtering and grouping and counting. I think just like those like basic skills right there is really like learning how to dribble and basketball. And if you learn those basic skills, you'll be able to play, you know? And so I think that, I think a lot of times people try to dive into the higher end of programming and databases, and it's really not necessary as first for a beginner. And you can get so much done just in the basic spreadsheet. So I would really encourage people to just start there and try to master that. And then in terms of like, if you're a beat reporter or have a topic you're working on, I think it's a little bit like I was talking about with the fire department is you want to look for standards or expectations or sort of goals, you know what I mean? Something to measure against, right? Because, you know, you're talking about something like that 911, you can calculate all these statistics and I can give my opinion, man, that like something is fast or slow, but what does that really matter, right? It's when you have something to measure against that you really are able to create a kind of experiment or a methodology that can result in a really clear and powerful piece of journalism, even if it's just the nut graph at the end of the day or a headline and, and not some fancy chart. People like us have been immersed in this for a considerable amount of time and data journalism literacy, we almost take it for granted because we've been through a lot of different things, but it's, it's not as simple as just like, here's the information. There's like a lot of nuance to it. Um, maybe without sourcing it, is there an example from your career where you, you stopped someone from doing something data-wise that they really shouldn't have done that because of a very simple misunderstood kind of situation or data point or just something that they misunderstood. You know, I've been lucky in my career not to have any like true disasters, <laughs> fingers <laughs> crossed. I yep. probably have one like awaiting me someday down the road. So I'm definitely not going to tempt fate. I think that, you know, those things can sometimes just happen almost like natural disasters, <laughs> but um I don't, I think that like, there's certain things that, I mean, th there's disagreements I've had in the newsroom about how to read numbers. I don't really want to necessarily get too particular, but like examples I would give from stories I've worked on is like, well, what if you, you know, a reporter has a source that tells them something about the data, but then the data doesn't actually support what the source says. So circumstances where journalists are kind of, I think from coming from a very good place, think they know what the story is but the data doesn't support the story or and sometimes contradicts the story. And I find that that's where you tend to have the largest conflicts is when sort of the idea that's been sold within the newsroom about what the story is going to be maybe isn't that sturdy, you know, because then you kind of end up in a, a conflict oftentimes about whether you're right or not, you know, and like that, that that's typically where it comes in. And those tend not to be all that, complicated you know it's just really about like do we believe what these numbers say right you know and getting people to kind of slow down and really capture it i think that that's one type of problem another type of problem that's pretty common is stories having too many numbers where you know i'm sure we've all read stories like this and people who've who've read data stories before they come out in draft form have definitely seen this issue i think that there's there's sometimes just an, a human impulse to try to really load up your quantitative 
and uh, I can really get overloaded. So I often find as a data editor, a lot of what I was doing was removing numbers from stories just to really try to distill what you're saying down to the most potent thing. You know, like yes. I know, Mark, you've worked on sports stories, and I think some of the best sports statistical stories are often about just one number. You know, it's like, here's the one number, and we're going to unpack what that number really means and how it, you know, how we end up with it and like what, why it matters, you know? Thousand percent. I deal with it every day. Hmm. Now you've worked on, you're someone who likes side projects from what I've seen. Can you explain past pages to us? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I do, I dabble in open source archiving. This is one of the things I'm kind of just interested in. If anyone who's drifted into data journalism world has probably noticed there's a pretty strong overlap between data journalists and librarians. I think a lot of the data journalism movement really overlapped pretty heavily with the news library movement. And, and so I've just met and got to know a lot of people who are professional librarians or have that training. I've had them as colleagues. I've had them as mentors. I've just bumped into them, you know, in our field. And, you know, as someone who's loved the internet since its early, very early moments, I've always been concerned about just the fragility of the web, just how much of it is disappearing and link rot and crash pages is just incredible. And it's a, it's a huge problem in news as well. And so, you know, as someone who's kind of ended up learning technology, I've just kind of goofed around with trying to come up with kind of technological fixes for like things that seem like kind of obvious problems. And so one of my, my little passion projects is related to news homepages. You know, I just feel like the homepages of news websites are really underappreciated as part of our cultural heritage. We're talking today um, on a day when the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II was just announced, and we're seeing all around the world in I don't know how many languages, a lot of really thought and design going into custom homepages to like spread that news out there. And you know, that art, that thing that's being made is for the most part being lost. You know, there's very little effort made to preserve those pages really anywhere. <laughs> and, and so I've partnered with the Internet Archive on a project that's had some ups and downs through the years. It's now now known simply as, it used to be called Past Pages. It's now known simply as just News Homepages, better name. It's at homepages.news is the website or News Homepages on Twitter. And we're using the Internet Archive's massive storage capacity and some really cool developments in cloud computing in the last few years to archive now close to 1,000 News Homepages around the world two times each day. That includes not just saving them in the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, but also taking screenshots, also pulling out all of the hyperlinks so that they can be studied for content analysis, and, if, and pulling out a couple other pieces of metadata for future people to study, and trying to build really a database of as many news homepages as we can um, you know, for the future. It reminds me of uh, when I when the museum used to exist, walking outside the museum and seeing the headlines from every major newspaper uh, across the country. It's the internet version of that. You also created a podcast that shared the archived audio of Studs Terkel, which includes interviews with, among others, Muhammad Ali, James Baldwin, Sidney Poitier, Rosa Parks, Jacques Cousteau, the survivors of the atomic bomb, many very... Uh, fascinating historical interviews. What can we learn in listening to Studs Terkel do an interview? Yeah, for those who don't know, Studs Terkel was a prolific journalist in the city of Chicago from like the 1950s until the past the turn of the century and into the 2000s. He actually started his life as an actor. He appeared in some of the first television sitcoms in Chicago and as a stage actor. 
And then he became kind of, I guess, what people might think of as a alternative or kind of left-wing journalist of his kind of generation. He's most famous for his books. So he wrote a series of books. The earliest ones were called Division Street and Working. And they're really kind of long-form oral histories. They're beautiful books. It's really studs talking to a sort of mosaic of just regular people, piano tuners and construction workers, and also rebel left-wing priests and <laughs> immigrants and just whoever to try to, cre to create like a mosaic sort of image of whatever topic he's trying to make his book about. And those interviews in his books, I think, have earned him a sort of saint-like status in the city of Chicago and among certain older lefty types. But one thing that's less known about Studs today is that he also, for decades, hosted an interview program on WFMT, which was the classical music station in Chicago. And it was a podcast. You know, it was Studs doing semi-structured, I guess I would call them, long-form interviews with not, not, not often regular people, though sometimes regular people, but often kind of the leading lights of the civil rights movement and the mid-century arts. It includes Buckminster Fuller, too, and da-da-da-da-da, and you can keep going, uh, Dorothy Parker and uh, Joan Didion and you name it, right? And they tend to be about 30 to 60 minutes long, and they've all, or not all, but hundreds of them have been uploaded onto the web by archivists who are working with WFMT to put them on the web. But they, they have a great website. It's awesome. Just Google Studs Circle Archive, and you can search through it yourself. It's really cool. But I just thought to myself, well, this I want to help spread this. I want more people to hear this and, and enjoy it the way I have. And so I created a podcast feed that really just draws a curated set of these interviews out of there. And we'll put them into your um, Google Play or your iTunes or your podcatcher, however you do it. So if you just Google Studs Turkle Podcast or go to studs.show is the website, <laughs> you can get the RSS feed. I'm about actually to launch what I'm calling season two. We're going to do another set of interviews that I'm I'm preparing now that'll probably be in the next few weeks. They're great. They are. They're fantastic. So last question. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and we ask you to pay it forward. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with, important point there, that you would like to salute for their good work? Well, I think this week we should all be saluting the Las Vegas Review Journal. It's a really sad story. An investigative reporter there, Jeff German, was was murdered over the, the last weekend. The police have now arrested a former county official who he had done a number of or several investigative stories about and was preparing another. And they have charged him with this stabbing murder of a journalist. And it's truly chilling and a really quite sad story. But you know, one one thing to salute in in this week has been just the truly dogged and professional coverage of Jeff's colleagues of this crime. The coverage on their website has been incredible. They were they were confronting the suspect at his home. They were gathering evidence connecting him to um, the car that police were searching for and were, were really fearless in the hours after the event and did a really great job in a circumstance that I'm sure was really emotional and difficult. Their professionalism shone through, and so I think the Review Journal deserves our salute. Absolutely. Ben, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with all your projects. Thanks for having me, Mark. If you're looking for another podcast to explore on this topic, check out the Shifting Schools podcast. You can learn more about what a data journalist does in their most recent episode, number 229, and you can keep that conversation going with a follow-up conversation featuring a data visualization specialist in episode 226. 
Find out more by heading over to shiftingschools.com or go wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.